Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. My name is Peter, and um, I'm on the teaching team here at City Church. I don't live in Charlottesville anymore. I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. As I say, every time I preach, it feels weird to introduce myself because I've known some of you since before I was born, and it feels weird not to introduce myself because wouldn't that be weird if I just assumed that you knew who I was? So my name is Peter, and I'm on the teaching team. Um, we're in this sermon series right now called The Kingdom of God in the Old Testament, at least I think that's what it's called, and um, have you ever watched the sequel first? Do you know what I mean? Like, if you watched The Godfather Part 2, unless you were raised in a mafia family, and my mother is Italian, um, you would, like, opening scenes of Godfather Part 2, you'd be like, huh, why is it four minutes of just a broken down house? What is that about? Or if uh, you, like I, are a hardcore Lord of the Rings fan, who's ready for September 2nd? Yeah. <laughs> Um, and you watched the Two Towers before you watched The Fellowship of the Ring, you'd be like, huh, why is Ian McKellen falling into that pit? And in similar form, um, the old... I've always wanted that to happen. Um, uh, wow, thank you for fulfilling one of my dreams. After this, could you take me to Paris on our honeymoon? Um, it's been the, the long tradition of the church that the more you know the Old Testament, the better you know the New Testament. The more you know the New Testament, the better you know the Old Testament. It just so happens that we live in a culture where we tend not to read the Old Testament that much. I don't know if anybody has been to a church recently that still has a pew Bible. Do you know what I mean? We don't have them. But that's not a theological statement. It's just we don't have them. But you can always pull out a pew Bible and tell exactly where Matthew is because it's where all the thumbs start in the upper right-hand corner. I mean, the Old Testament just doesn't get so much time. And so this sermon series is the attempt to take a look at the Old Testament in such a way that it funds and enhances our reading of Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God. Uh, the Last week, I think my father introduced a word which I think is very fun to say, which is Tanakh. Uh, and this is basically what the Tanakh is. It's the way that um, for most of Western history, uh, Jewish rabbis have organized the Old Testament. And you'll note that it is by genre. So you have the Torah, which are the five books of Moses, and then you have the Nevi'im, which are the prophets, and then you have the unspecifically named Ketuvim, the other stuff. It means the writings. This is how Judaism organizes the Old Testament. By and large, Christians organize the Old Testament chronologically, not by genre, but by storyline. So if you run through the Old Testament at a clip, uh, what you will basically read is a story, basically. And this sermon series is organized around the high points of this story. So creation, and then Abraham, and today I have the Exodus. Um, to give you the punchline of this sermon, what we're basically talking about is what it matters, like why would it matter, because it does, that the New Testament uses the Exodus story to make a number of important points. 
the Exodus story appears very subtly, often not explicitly, in the New Testament. And this, we're kind of asking the question, well, what does that mean? What does it teach us that the New Testament likes the Exodus story? The answer to that question is a very touchy subject, and I don't mean to make you uncomfortable. It's touchier than politics, touchier than money, and it's salvation. I know. Don't run out. I'm sure all of us have been driving down a highway somewhere and you saw a sign for a taco place and a sign for a gas station and then a giant sign that was like, Jesus saves. Whoa, I was very loud. I didn't mean to be that loud. Um, and, and, or like, uh, you know, you go into a restaurant and there's just like a flashing neon sign that's like, Jesus saves. Or you were out for a walk in Manhattan, otherwise having a fairly pleasant day and then somebody is there telling you what's going to happen to your eternal future. Do you know what I mean? Um, this has never happened to me, but some friends of mine who are, in fact, Christians will be on planes and someone will look at them and be like, do you know where you will spend eternity? And, like, if you ask me the question, it's like, I don't know where I'm going to spend tonight. Like, I don't, you know. All to say, salvation, it can be a touchy subject. And I think it's touchy. I think it's tense. I think it's sometimes hard to talk about because it has two aspects. One is salvation really matters. In fact, from a certain point of view, it is like the most important thing ever. And from another point of view, it is entirely theoretical. Because I don't know about you, but I have never died. So I don't really know what happens after I die. So when you ask me, like, and where will you spend eternity? It's like, I don't know where I'm going to spend my 40s. Like, I don't have a... I can't see that far into the future. And so I at least get very nervous when people want to talk to me about salvation oftentimes because it feels hugely important and largely theoretical. But the Exodus story is the story that Paul and Jesus and Luke and Peter and John and Jude, we're not going to read all those, but it's the story that all the New Testament authors use to teach people what it means to be saved. So at the end of time, when I stand before God and I am saved, if the Lord lists out my sins, one of the things he will say is, on February 20th of 2022, you gave the worst overview of the Exodus that anyone has ever given, and this I hold against you, but you all are just going to have to suffer that. So, um, we can't read the whole Exodus story, and I'm not going to show you Charlton Heston's Ten Commandments or the Prince of Egypt or anything, though we all love that opening song, don't we? I know we do. Uh, I'm just going to try in, you know, a reasonable amount of time to then go talk about the New Testament, the Exodus story. Here's what happens, in case you don't know. Abraham's children, a couple generations down, find themselves in slavery in ancient Egypt. And they're in slavery for like 400-odd years. And um, no one really saw that coming, necessarily. But it was tragic and awful and surprising. And at the opening of the Exodus story, the big bad guy does the big bad thing. And the big bad guy is Pharaoh. And the big bad thing he does is start to kill the Jewish boys at birth as a form of population control. And of course, for centuries, the Jews have cried out to God for freedom from slavery, but this is like, this is the big moment. And so God raises up this fellow named Moses to lead them out of Egypt 
into freedom, as the text says, to worship God in the wilderness. So Moses marches back into Egypt and tells Pharaoh to let the people go, and Pharaoh, you know, doesn't. And so God does these 10 sort of terrifying and dramatic signs, like the Nile turns to blood and frogs come out of nowhere. And God is like showing God's power to Egypt. It's like, you let my people go or there will be darkness for days, which there is. And the last of these signs is the most sort of gutting and aggressive, where God basically says, I will do to Pharaoh's people what Pharaoh's people have done to my people. And so God says, the death angel will pass over Egypt and the firstborn son of every house will die unless there's the blood of a lamb on the doorpost. As you can imagine, the Egyptians do not really believe God, though they've had nine chances to see God do stuff. So they don't put blood on their doorposts. There is great mourning in Egypt and Pharaoh finally lets the Jews go. So they wander into the wilderness, and when they're just out the door, Pharaoh thinks like, why did I do that? So he gets the army together, and they go to chase them down. And there's a big showdown where God parts the waters of the Red Sea, and the Israelites make it through, and then when the Egyptians get in there, God hits the closed door button, and they all drown. And then God appears to them as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and God leads them into the desert. That is chapters 1 to 15 of the Exodus. Chapters 16 to 40, um, well, chapters 16 to 40 are a more complicated story to review. But the bottom line is this. God takes Israel through the desert towards the land that he had promised to Abraham. And it doesn't go particularly well, like there are moments where Israel rebels or she goes back on the covenant or decides to break the law or starts worshiping foreign gods. But it's this complicated story of God providing for them and them defaulting and God giving them the law and them breaking the law, but then returning to God. And that happens for Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. And then in Joshua, they make it to the promised land. I know you kept up on all of that, but don't worry, I have made a slide to demonstrate this. So, uh, this is my seven-point review of the Exodus story. It'll be important later. They start an enslavement to Pharaoh. God does miraculous signs, the last of which is the death of the son and the blood of the lamb. Anybody see the reference? Then there's the Red Sea, where Egypt gets crushed, and then God's personal presence in the cloud and in the fire leads God's people into the desert where God provides for them for a couple generations until they reach the promised land. It is a conceptually simple story. They leave Egypt, they go into the desert, they get to the promised land. Okay, um, that story is the paradigmatic story for the Old Testament of what it means to be saved. We could, for instance, read the Song of Mary that happens in Exodus 15, though we will not, because you don't deserve to go through all of that. Um, but this story of God delivering God's people from enslavement in Egypt becomes the framework, like the paradigm for what it means to be saved. 
If I stopped most other American Christians and was like, tell me what it means to be saved, my expectation is most people would tell me a story that starts with heaven and hell. They'd be like, well, Peter, you're on your way to hell, but if you believe in Jesus, you don't have to go there. And there's truth to that. But if you stopped the New Testament authors on the street and you were like, say, James, what does it mean to be saved? James would start saying, well, once long in our history, God saved our people from Egypt. We were in slavery to Pharaoh, and then God, with his own power, led us out of Egypt towards the land that God had promised us. Um, it always happens. There, every, everybody has frameworks in everything we do. I mean that in the loosest sense. Like, if you're in college and there's something not on the syllabus, you lose your mind. Or if you're a nurse, I imagine, I hope, you have a checklist of things that you ask about when someone comes in to the office. Or, I don't know, if you're a teacher, you have a lesson plan. We have these, these tools for seeing the world that change our expectations and our decisions and we have frameworks. And the Exodus is the New Testament's framework for what it means to be saved. This story sets our expectations for what being saved looks like, feels like. What are we supposed to expect because of that? And so um, to prove this to you, I wanted to take you to the New Testament to a place where you could see this very clearly. And the problem is, there's basically nowhere in the New Testament where you can't go to see this very clearly. Like, the first five chapters of Matthew are the, like, review of the Torah, and Luke's whole gospel is basically one new Exodus narrative, and Galatians 4, and Romans 6, and Romans 8. And so I basically just closed my eyes and threw a dart and hit 1 Corinthians 10 and thought, good enough for me, so we are going to take a look at 1 Corinthians 10, at this place where Paul very explicitly adopts in his theology the story of the Exodus to teach something to the Corinthian church. And in case you can't guess, I think it's also a lesson that is worth learning for us. So, 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1, reads like this. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things, the Exodus story, took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Don't be idolaters as some of, their were, uh, some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to humanity. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 
I don't know how clearly you can already see this. I probably don't have to make this point at all. But Paul is using the Exodus story to tell the church in Corinth where they live, what time it is, who they are. Paul, if you'll recall from last week, was kind of the preeminent theologian who made the case that the promises given to Abraham and, for his, and, and until Jesus had been fulfilled and offered to ethnic Jews only were now open to the inclusion of the Gentiles because of Jesus. I know a lot of you, I think very few of us were like raised ethnically Jewish. So this is very good news for the vast majority of us in this room that in Jesus Christ, the Gentiles are included in the promise of Abraham. And in fact, Paul believes that so unironically that he thinks the story of the Exodus was written for this Jesus-made church, that because the end of the ages, the kingdom of God, has begun to arrive in the world in the Jew-Gentile united church, that the Exodus story is actually an example waiting to teach them something. I mean, look at what he says. He says, our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Except, of course, it's not all of their fathers because the Corinthian church is not predominantly Jewish. Our fathers is now our fathers, Jew and Gentile, because of who Jesus is. So our fathers passed through the sea, and they were baptized into Moses. Okay, so on the one hand, Paul goes, the Exodus story is the story of Jewish ancestry. That is now the ancestry of the church. But then he does the same thing backwards, where he says the practice of the church is to baptize people into Jesus in the same way that the, the, in the Exodus story, they were baptized into Moses. Do you see this? I know this is somewhat academic, but I wear perfectly round tortoiseshell glasses. Actually, these, uh, my optometrist broke my glasses last week, so these are my backups in case you were wondering why I look so different. Uh, but Paul is taking the Exodus story and the life of the church, and he's bringing them together and if you map this out explicitly, as I have done in this chart, it's a little creepy, isn't it? Okay, so over here, the historical Jews are in enslavement to Pharaoh as Christians were in enslavement to sin. And then God does the miraculous 10 signs, which Jesus does in his life. He does these miraculous signs in the spirit. The last sign is the death of the son and the blood of the lamb. Do I even have to say it? Then they go through the Red Sea in the same way that Christians go through baptism, which again, if you haven't done, you can do it here in a couple weeks. Then God's own personal presence in the cloud and the fire lead them into the desert in the same way that God's own personal presence in the spirit leads the church. And while they are in the desert, God sustains the miraculous with food in the same way that God sustains us with communion, which we will do today, such that at the end of time, the church arrives in the full kingdom of God in the same way that Israel arrived in the promised land. It's almost like they had help. I mean, it's crazy how much these things, like, right? So what Paul is trying to do to Corinth is to tell them where they are which parenthetically is also where you are. So run it down again. If you believe in Jesus, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to yell. If you believe in Jesus, and you know, Jesus has already done his thing, he already got crucified, and you know, then that puts us through baptism in the spirit, and we're gonna take the Lord's Supper, which means, which means that if you're a Christian in 2022, and you are saved, 
your framework for your life is the desert. Christians live in the desert. We aren't in captivity to Pharaoh. We've been pulled out of sin, but we're also not in the promised land. We're stuck in the desert. We're not where we were, but we're not where we're going. We're kind of, we're negotiating the middle. I mean, doesn't it kind of feel that way? Like, I don't have kids, but I assume that those of you who do, you're just making it up. Like, you're negotiating the middle along the way. And I know some of you who are writing papers recently, you didn't have it planned when you turned it in. So much of life is working between this certain thing I know back here and that certain thing I'm really hoping for, and I'm trying to negotiate the middle part. And that's why Paul when he wants to tell the church in Corinth what their, what their life together should be like, he looks at the Exodus story and the stories in Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy because he really thinks that those stories can teach you how to live in the desert and you are also in the desert. To be saved is to be saved from sin for the kingdom of God, but in the middle we're kind of working it out. It's why the more you read the Old Testament, the more you understand the New Testament because all those lessons that Israel learned in the desert still apply today. And I'm sure lots of you know these stories, so you can just kind of run them in your head here. But it's things like Israel learns that God miraculously provides. He does. If God calls you somewhere and there's nothing to eat, he will literally rain down bread from the sky. Or if God, if God calls you to some great big challenge, like we're going to take over the promised land, the only virtue you need to, to have is faith. God provides. Faith is what gets you there. The Israelites learn that you never make it alone. Nobody can do this alone. You have to go together. The church is a team sport. You know what I mean? And so there's all these lessons that are held back in the Tanakh that Paul thinks are this remarkable wealth, this bank of spiritual lessons for how the church understands what it means for us to be saved. We are living in the desert. We're negotiating the middle. I'd like to invite the worship team up as we prepare for communion and to give us a chance to pray together. And here's what I would like to pray about. If we're in the desert and we're in the middle, that means you probably have some stories some, uh, like, fun to tell to your grandkids, very meaningful, very concrete stories about how God has saved you from something. You've got stuff in the bank. You do. And you likely, if you have put your faith in Jesus, have hope that in the future there is a day, there really is a day, when everything will be made well. The kids' Bible, I like, says, when all the sad things become untrue. But in the middle... In the desert, we're all in process. We have relationships that are not functioning. We have habits that even we don't like. We have thoughts that like plague and haunt us. We still need to be delivered. It doesn't take that long to get Israel out of Egypt. It takes three generations to get Egypt out of Israel. And if you're in this place in the middle of salvation, there are things, I'm sure we have them, that we want to offer to the Lord and bring to the Lord and ask him to save us again in this middle place. So as we prepare for communion to take the spiritual food and drink the spiritual drink, let's take a second to pray together 
to prepare ourselves to use communion as a time to bring that middle stuff, that desert stuff to the Lord. So would you pray with me? God, um, in all these places in the Torah, when you talk to Israel, you start off by identifying yourself. Yourself, You say, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt, or I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And on this Sunday morning, when we have a couple minutes, I ask that you would identify yourself to us again. That you're the God who has brought us out of addiction, or you're the God who has brought us into wholeness, that you're the God who's brought us into confidence and worth, that you're the God who's brought us into rest. Bring to mind again all those stories of your faithfulness because we need them as we face up to the desert that we're living in, where you are providing and you are guiding, but it doesn't mean it's always going well. And so, Lord God, in faith and trusting that you provide as you provide your own body and blood for your supper. We ask that you would see us in the places where we are captive, that you would hear our cries and groaning, that you would deliver us. We ask that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in our own lives as it also is in heaven. Amen.